I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The state Supreme Court struck down two anti-abortion measures. The laws made abortion illegal except in a medical emergency. In a 6-3 decision, the court says the state's abortion bans passed last year are too restrictive and vague for doctors. Ryan, where does the procedure now stand in the state? Well, let's be clear that I think that a lot is being made out of these by opponents of abortion rights and reproductive rights. Uh, that this is somehow this out-of-control court that is uh, uh, running over the legislative intent and these these bills that have meant to restrict abortion uh, access in the state of Oklahoma over many years. Um, And while these, uh, while both this decision and the decision earlier uh, this year in March um, did create some constitutional protections for women seeking abortion access and abortion care in the state of Oklahoma, they these decisions uh, have not uh, made abortion illegal uh, or legal across the board in Oklahoma. It has not restored us to a uh, to the pre-reversal of Roe v. Wade uh, by the Supreme Court, um, and so we we do still find that abortion is illegal in the state of Oklahoma, with with some rare exception. Um, and what the court has said here, though, is that that exception is that. Um, the, there is an inherent right uh, in our state constitution to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they found in March, uh, in, this, in, a, in an earlier decision, that that inherent life means that a pregnant woman has a right to terminate a pregnancy in order to protect her life, to preserve her life. Uh, what that, and so that's a very limited protection that's, uh, that's found in the state constitution and an inherent right uh, that women in Oklahoma have in the state constitution. Um, and so these bills, uh, like the prior legislation that had been struck down in March, required that a medical emergency be um, uh, be found before a woman could exercise that right to protect her life. Uh, and the Supreme Court said no. Requiring that a physician and a woman come to the conclusion that there is a medical emergency, some some imminent medical emergency, before you can have an abortion to save that woman's life, uh, that is what is unconstitutional. Uh, you know that is the a violation of the inherent right of women in the state of Oklahoma to have an abortion to be able to protect their life. Putting that additional hurdle of an of a medical emergency, that is what violates the state constitution. These are very important rulings. Don't get me wrong, but the idea that this is some you know out of control activist court. Uh, that has expanded abortion rights in the state of Oklahoma uh, back to where they were uh, under Roe, that has just not happened. Aniva. Well, I mean, what what has happened, you're right, Ryan, is that we have the 1910 law prohibiting abortion 
uh, remaining in, in place, in effect. And so, again, as you say, except uh, basically with the exception being uh, the uh, life of the mother um, being, being in jeopardy, uh, that that is the law that is still um, uh, what we have in Oklahoma. I think with respect to the actions of the court, I mean, it was in some measure no large surprise, given the fact that we've seen the court kind of moving this direction in their um, in their thinking on this on on the matters of um, abortion bans, like we're seeing here. Clearly, one of the issues I think, and one of the takeaways, is the fact that um, when we see many of these high-profile bills uh, being crafted in the legislature. I think it is growing more and more incumbent upon legislate, legislators not to just take uh, kind of the um, cut and paste idea from other states. I mean, much of this was taken from uh, the state of Texas, uh, and and states oftentimes try to take uh, model legislation they view as something that they want to uh, replicate in their state, but you have to take into account your own state constitution. So I think uh, I think this is somewhat of a wake up call for lawmakers to really be um, very very studious and very uh, deliberate in how they craft legislation on any subject matter. And so I think um, in the instance of this, um, we're going to continue to see this um, uh, play out in the courts, play out in in legislate in legislatures. Um, for a long time to come, just like we've seen this matter come up for decades here in Oklahoma. And I think to point to the fact that it was in 1910 that the legislature um, made, uh, was very, very clear all through time of this very strong pro-life stand and very strong anti-abortion view with respect to uh, the laws of the land in Oklahoma. And this decision was 6-3 instead of 5-4. Uh, Justice Darby, who had dissented in that March uh, case, which was the Oklahoma uh, call for uh, the Oklahoma uh, call for reproductive justice v. Drummond, uh, you know, Justice Darby was in the dissent in that case, came over to the majority in this case, made it 6-3, did so because of the, the principle of stare decisis, the idea that the court had created this this finding of an inherent right in March, and that it was now an obligation of the court to continue to find, uh, to uh, uphold that finding of an inherent right. I would ask our listeners, you know, go back to that case, Oklahoma call for reproductive justice v. Drummond, that was decided back in March, and, and read the concurrence from Justice Cogger. It is one of the most powerful concurrences I've ever seen written by uh, a justice in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, and it gives a, a remarkable history of the right, the political rights of women in the state and uh, in, ter- in uh, the the state territory prior to statehood, um, and where the state supreme court found this inherent right to exist. I think that there's this idea that courts just manufacture these things out of thin air, uh, and there's some sort of you know judicial magic at play here. But go back and read this uh, this concurring opinion from Justice Cogger. I think it's it's a very important. A sense of both how the court reached this opinion and in the history of the state of Oklahoma. State Superintendent Ryan Walters is facing a lawsuit from at least three former Department of Education employees. One comes from a woman who spoke at a local school board meeting where her kids attend, but two were fired for sharing an email from Walters policy advisor Matt Langston. 
Langston admits the email was a trap to see who would be a whistleblower in the agency. Neva, what do you think of these legal challenges? Well, I think um, we'll see how they play out in the court, but certainly the fact that they very quickly, these terminated employees from the State Department of Education, file federal lawsuits uh, um, in in saying that they were wrongfully terminated. And in, a, in the instance of uh, viewing this with respect to whistleblower, um, the attorney and, and many have said that uh, they would they would view what has been laid out so far as traditional whistleblowing. So uh, very serious and something that uh, a lot of people are going to pay attention to. And and I think, again, with this backdrop of the ongoing saga, not only with the, with the state superintendent, but with his kind of number one uh, person who is the, the guy that put together this idea of we're going to get these employees and use this notion that had been laid out by um, Elon Elon Musk when he was trying to uh, uh, figure out who his problems were, you know, among uh, Tesla employees. And so they kind of replicated this, whether or not it uh, was, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Matt Langston um, doing it on his own or whether or not it was in concert with his boss, the state superintendent, Ryan Walters. I mean, all of that stuff will have to ultimately play out. But you have a you also have an attorney here filing these suits, someone who has been in the legislature. He served, I think, about three, I think, three terms um, in the House back in the uh, uh, the early 70s. So someone that uh, has been around knows the knows knows government. And I think uh, certainly understands what is uh, being laid out here right now and all of the implications that go along with it. So I think people, I, I don't think anyone should be dismissive. And certainly that was the attitude of uh, uh, Ryan Walter's spokesman, who basically, you know, throughout the the words saying that these claims were absurd and, and uh, a waste of taxpayer money and frivolous and had no merit. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure on the front end of any kind of uh, lawsuits being put forward, like what we're describing, that was a very prudent uh, uh, response. But again, we will see this probably play out in Twitter land, as I like to call it, with these guys who want to spend all of their time laying out their case and, and making comments uh, in social media rather than being very thoughtful and uh, having proper, you know, more proper exchanges in the minds of many uh, with respect to the facts and what, what will be ongoing in these lawsuits. Ryan. Well, and... I think that as much as anything, Oklahomans right now should be taking uh, notice of who is Matt Langston uh, and, and you know what is his role within the State Department of Education. It doesn't seem to be very clear at this point. Is he the chief of staff? Is he not the chief of staff? Does he live in Oklahoma? Doesn't he live in Oklahoma? Ben Felder with the Oklahoman uh, had an excellent piece on uh, trying to understand who is this individual that seems to be behind a lot of the political decisions that Ryan Walters is making. And, and kind of the political persona that Ryan Walters has uh, taken on since he decided to run for superintendent of public uh, instruction in the state of Oklahoma. Um, and what we see is you know, this type of uh, tactic uh, that, that Matt Langston used here with this email, uh, where you're just open threat of retaliation uh, against an employee uh, or employees uh, and um, a discussion of immediate termination 
this seems to be you know very consistent uh, with with these with this kind of you know petty political tactics that he's used throughout his political career. Um, you know, I, you know, guys like uh, Matt Langston are a dime a dozen. You know, they all think that they're very very clever, uh, and you know, eventually they'll run into a brick wall, and then they'll find they'll they'll find a way to another Ryan Walters whether it's in Oklahoma or somewhere else, and they'll attach themselves to them. And they'll just, you know, they'll try to make a career out of that. Um, but what he doesn't understand and what's different than Elon Musk uh, doing this at Twitter is that Twitter isn't the government. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't have any First Amendment rights against Twitter. Uh, they're a private corporation. But when the government tells someone that you cannot say something, uh, then the First Amendment is triggered. And now that doesn't mean that everybody has an absolute right to speech. Public employees can be limited in the kind of speech uh, that they're able to uh, communicate. But whenever you're talking about something that isn't part of the employee's actual job, and they're speaking outside of their actual job functions, um, then there's a very heavy burden on the state to demonstrate that that communication, that that speech uh, is disruptive and undermines the mission of that particular agency. Uh, and that's just uh, not the case here. And especially uh, whenever the matter is a matter of public concern, which most obviously these two employees, the communications here are matters of public concern. Uh, we as a public should hope that our public employees that are front and center at the front lines of the implementation of state policies, they know what's happening more than really any of us. I mean, they, they see it, that's where the rubber hits the road. I, we should all hope that they have the ability to speak freely. And the idea that anybody would use these kind of Gestapo tactics of, you know, silencing their employees under threat of immediate termination, I suspect that they will be held accountable in these, these civil lawsuits. I, I, I don't see a way in which the State Department of Education, Ryan Walters or Matt Langston are going to be able to defend themselves uh, against these lawsuits. And, well, and, you know, and, and when you look at these lawsuits, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, one of these individuals uh, was the executive director of the school-based mental health uh, program at the State Department. The other was a, uh, um, I think, was the program manager for, uh, the, for school success uh, at the State Department. And in that instance, that individual, um, basically, the contention is that uh, the information uh, was shared not only with the office of the attorney general, but with the uh, with an Oklahoma state representative, and in his own his own assertions. I mean, what he said was he wanted uh, to explain to them and make sure that they were aware that this teacher pay plan that uh, Ryan Walters had proposed back in April. I mean, out on uh, one of his uh, um, road shows in one of the schools, I mean, he laid out this plan where he was going to use $16 million in federal money for one-time signing bonuses that would range from, I think, fifteen dollars to $50,000 and federal money. And um, it was the concern of this particular individual bringing it forward that, uh, that this might indeed not uh, pass muster in terms of um, uh, being able to be funds used in that fashion. So, you know, you've got a lot of, you know, you've got a lot of issues here and you're right, Ryan. I mean, it's, it's something that uh, regardless of what happens, you know, on the social media side with all of these folks, I mean, the facts are the facts and the law is very clear as you get down to starting to address these kind of issues, particularly whistleblower issues. Uh, so we'll have to see how this moves forward. But again, 
it, it's the fact that we that we have this display by an employee of uh, Matt Langston, now an employee or a contract employee, whatever his whatever his situation is uh, in the employment uh, with Ryan Walters, that he issued this memo and then you know uh, basically flaunted the idea in in this um, uh, tweet that he put out, basically. Uh, words to the effect that he that the uh, liberal media had kind of jumped on this uh, email and this memo like a hand grenade and really giving um, kudos to his boss for being so bold as to go down this road. So a lot of things to unpack, but a lot of uh, a lot of comments that certainly are going to come back uh, uh, around to be discussed because it, you can't have gag orders. I mean, you have right. You can't have a gag order. And in essence, um, many would contend just from what we've seen on the surface that that's a big question with uh, some of what's been rolled out right now in this law in these lawsuits. Yeah, Ryan, they actually mentioned in the letter that these employees had signed non-disclosure agreements. And I'm thinking NDAs in the government. I don't know if that's actually legal. Yeah, I don't think that it is. I think that asking your employees to choose between, because ostensibly, if you don't sign this non-disclosure agreement, uh, then you are not eligible for uh, employment. I mean, I think making your employment contingent upon a non-disclosure agreement um, that is not narrowly tailored uh, for a state agency is a violation of the First Amendment. Again, state agencies can restrict uh, what public employees say in some instances. I mean, for, for example, you could tell, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the attorney general could tell an investigator within their office that they're not allowed to go on uh, social media and discuss an ongoing investigation. Well, right, police or fire part, or military yeah, that's can part all of their say job. yes. Yeah, so that could be part of your job function. But if you're talking about something that's a matter of public interest and has nothing to do with what your actual job is there, then the state and the public employer have very little by way of ability to restrict your ability to speak and communicate about those matters. Uh, and if they do so, then they are you know, running afoul of the First Amendment. On Friday, the 2023 legislative session officially came to an end. Lawmakers finished up their work, including the passage of a nearly $13 billion budget for fiscal year 2024. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this session? Well, it's not totally over. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't. It's not like we're we, we're waiting for like season two to drop. Uh, you know, but but there are there are maybe a couple of uh, bonus episodes that are in the works here, and and a lot of that depends on how the governor responds to these budget bills that have been sent to the governor's desk. Uh, as our listeners, uh, I'm sure are. Uh, can recall that we've we've walked into this extraordinary special session that happened at the end in the last few weeks, uh, primarily because lawmakers had run out of time uh, to put together a budget, get it passed in time to get on the governor's desk, and then have enough time themselves that the governor vetoed any of these appropriation measures to try to override those vetoes. And so they they went into this special session. They passed all of the budget bills through this special session. That special session remains open. Uh, they have not adjourned from that special session. So while they adjourn the regular session and those bills, uh, you know, those bills, the governor has, you know, 15 days to either sign those bills or those bills uh, are uh, considered a pocket veto. 
the regular session, the bills are operating under the same calendar. So you know, we're uh, you know, taping on, on Thursday, uh, June 1st. The governor has until 11.59 p.m. tonight to uh, veto uh, these measures that were passed out of the special session, these budget matters. If he doesn't, they become law. And so I think everybody is you know, sitting around seeing you know, what part of the budget the governor may or may not veto. Uh, the legislature is set to come back in mid-June. I think you know, June 12th is the date that folks are looking at. Uh, to come back to potentially override any of these vetoes that the governor uh, may affect by the end of today. Um, and, you know, there's still some some uh, some bills that the legislature still needs to put on the governor's desk out of that special session, including a measure that would, um, you know, direct for the appropriation uh, and expenditure of $12.5 million to the state question 781 fund, which mm -hmm. hasn't received a single penny since it passed back in 2016. Uh, from the savings that the states realized. And the state has, I think, estimated those now to be over $70 million, but we've got a $12.5 million appropriation, which is a great first step. The legislature still has to act on that. So there are still some things that are shaking out here. Um, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't call it over just yet, but it was a wild session. Uh, and it was, I think, in, in the, um, the eyes of, of many longtime Capitol uh, observers, uh, one of the the strangest legislative uh, uh, sessions that they'd ever seen. It was it was an odd environment at the Capitol the entire year. Uh, well, it seems like a year. It was only from February to May, but uh, from February to May, it was a very odd environment at the at the state Capitol. And a lot of that had to do with the lines that were drawn early in session and even before session started around education reform and funding. Neva. I think you're right, Ryan. I think I think most people that were in that building, uh, for whatever reason, professionally or otherwise, um, uh, throughout the course of this the session, were uh, pretty well worn slick because it it was so slow moving for so long, uh, with so many things, uh, with the education focus being the dominant force that drove everything ultimately, and some of it off the cliff. Some would say. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think what you have is a session that the the really the the last drama will be what we see the governor do before the end of the evening today uh, with um, with this veto pen. And I think there's every expectation that he's going to, uh, uh, in all likelihood, people I think would be surprised to not see him veto parts of the budget and and some 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 things that. Uh, will definitely put the legislature um, uh, front and center again to decide, do they want to override those when they come back on June 12th? So, and you're right, Ryan, they're uh, on June 12th, that Monday, it will be the, the first day of three for uh, their ability, uh, lawmakers, to move on some of these things that kind of left hanging uh, right there at the at the tail end of, uh, of the regular session. So, there, there's some things that can still happen. I think um, uh, in in many instances, I think folks don't want to come back for a long time. And there's this kind of backdrop of um, some suggestion that the governor may want to bring them in in another special session, talking about whether it's more about uh, um, some of the tax cuts that he's still insisting on, you know, pushing or other things. And I'm not sure what the appetite for that will will be if that conversation really gets front and center and happens uh, during during this summer 
um, the summertime when these folks have literally, um, they couldn't, for, for the most part, wait to get out of the building last week. So um, we'll watch with interest, but I think the, the next thing that's really the conversation piece is what happens with uh, what happens with overrides if they happen and what happens moving forward with an agenda looking as we get kind of past this and the dust really settles. I think the other thing to, that uh, everyone steps back and begins to think about is what does next session look like? Next session uh, is uh, is a a year when there many of them will be running for re-election. As we always talk about, that changes the dynamic. But more importantly, it will be a year and a session where for the first time, we will have leadership um, uh, leadership movement because you'll have both the House and the Senate, the Speaker and the Pro Tem uh, in their last year and, and going out at the same time, which uh, I don't recall ever mm -hmm. happening. Uh, in in the entire history of the Oklahoma legislature, so the the um, um, intrigue of who's going to be next in those in those leadership positions and the leadership um, fight um, in both chambers uh, to uh, uh, to see who's going to wind up um, being the winner is going to be something that may. Uh, dominate more of the discussion than even some of the legislation next session. So they're already shifting and beginning to think forward into what that looks like as they look at things that got left on the dust heap or or, or that they pull back hoping to deal with next session and what that looks like when there will be an awful lot of horse trading going going along with, uh, with these two uh, legislative uh, efforts to see who's going to be the speaker in the pro tem. In the waning days of the session, lawmakers managed to override more than a dozen measures vetoed by the governor. The bills include renewing the state's public television station, OETA, updating Oklahoma's name, image, likeness provisions for college students, and appointments to the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority. Neva, how important was it for lawmakers to override these vetoes? Oh, I think it was very important, and I think it was expected. And I think the interesting thing was they overrode some and didn't override others. So there was some interesting, you know, it started out with the tantrum 20 was the way it was dubbed. These 20 Senate bills that the governor um, vetoed, kind of just uh, just summarily vetoed in many people's minds, uh, trying to force the Senate to pass the education funding plan. And out of that, uh, there was a lot of spill off, uh, as there often is once you start uh, once you start going down that path with the vetoes. So they came back in, they um, they did a number, you know, a number of their overrides, but they also left some that if you looked at it and read them, you would think, well, why would they not override those? In some instances, it was because because it wasn't necessary because they'd all already used some other vehicle, some other bill to get done what they needed to get done. Things like, you know, where you have uh, the licensure boards and, and you have to have the, when they're sunsetting, you have to have the the uh, the renewal and whether it's architects or um, whatever it happened to be that got caught up in that chiropractors and some others, there, was, there were other vehicles used to uh, deal with that rather than come back and override those specific bills the governor vetoed. So, um, you know, I think what we're seeing also out of all of this, when you really step back, I mean, vetoes historically are thoughtful and very carefully 
uh, crafted, and even in terms of the veto message of why a governor would choose to veto what let lawmakers have uh, passed in both chambers and put on his desk. And so in this instance, when it was just kind of this smorgasbord of, you know, veto, 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 um, I think I think there should be a pause button on that. And I think I've heard that comment made from many uh, who work on, you know, not only on the from the legislative perspective, but those who work to try to work with lawmakers to pass good legislation and good policy that um, that hopefully this will not be a precursor to something that just becomes kind of standard, arbitrary and, and uh, not well thought out, but rather just the opposite. Ryan. Yeah, Neva, I think that that's right. The The precedent of a governor using their veto authority to um, not speak directly to a particular piece of legislation is fairly unique. Uh, I can't think of you know really any other example of other governors, Republican or Democratic governors in the state that have vetoed one measure uh, because they were dissatisfied with lack of progress on another measure. Uh, and that's what we saw. I mean, now, you know, some of those measures, like the the OETA funding bill, uh, the tribal regalia bill, both of which the legislature uh, overrode those vetoes, and those will become law now. Uh, and so OETA will, uh, you know, stay on our uh, airwaves, which I'm, you know, incredibly grateful for uh, as a as a viewer and supporter of OETA. Um, and you know, the tribal regalia bill, which will provide a an avenue for indigenous students in the state of Oklahoma to honor their uh, native heritage whenever they're at a time of celebration uh, at the end of their high school, uh, their time in high school when they, they're graduating. Uh, those, you know, the governor had some particular messages around that, but we also saw a lot of bills where he just frankly said that this is, uh, this may be good policy, but I'm not going to allow it to move forward because I want progress on the education reform, teacher pay raise bill, the, the, the voucher tax credit bill. He wanted movement on those. I think that that's a, that can begin to be a, a, I understand that the executive wants to, you know, flex their muscle in the, in the legislative process. Um, but I think, you know, acting outside of the policy in a particular bill uh, is, can create a, a pretty dangerous game of policy chicken where, I mean, the, the legislature, I, I know that uh, you said that it was uh, expected that these overrides were going to happen. Uh, and if you were talking to lawmakers in those final weeks, they told you, yes, if these if these come up on the floor, we will vote to override them. There are the votes to override them. But given everything else that was happening during that final uh, few weeks of session, there's always a chance that you just run out of time, uh, that something happens. Um, and um, you, you create additional work for everybody where, you know, something that somebody thought was just a, a pawn in a chess match. Uh, gets left, uh, you know, just unnoticed, and all of a sudden you you found yourself in a, a real uh, bind when the legislature's not in session, and you're you're uh, you're trying to fix something or uh, you know plug a leak until next February when the legislature can fix it. Mm -hmm. um, these are these are real issues that I think that any governor should should think about in terms of how they're exercising that that veto authority. You know, and it's interesting. One of the things that I think is going to be something everyone should kind of pay attention to, because I think it's going to be a fascinating um, thing to watch, is will the governor uh, take his veto pen to line item in the education uh, budget mm -hmm. portion? There's a section that 
it basically says that the state superintendent of public instruction must, he's being mandated or to apply for every grant that was applied for uh, in the previous in, in the previous year. So, um, you know, we've already seen this this uh, kind of tussle and tug of war on whether or not Ryan Walters wants to do that. With this provision, the only way he can get past that is that there is actually a caveat that says that the superintendent could go to the speaker and the pro tem and explain, in essence, why he does not want to apply for certain grants. And it would require both legislative leaders, the pro tem and the speaker, to sign a letter agreeing that that particular grant or grants be exempted. So um, I think the question in my mind, and it's an interesting scenario, is does the governor veto that? And then does the legislature, do they override that? Or do they just say, okay, governor, this is on you and, and the superintendent and 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 let it go from there and so um because the override would have to start in the senate which that would be fascinating in and of itself i mean in terms of moving moving on that um but it it will be an interesting chess match that uh, to watch here um as we as we see what happens by as you say Ryan 11:59 this <laughs> evening thursday um and then see what happens uh, when they come back on June 12th. And I'm sure we'll talk about it some next week, but we've already seen a couple of vetoes that have happened today around uh, tribal compacts dealing with, mm -hmm. with tobacco and motor vehicle uh, tags. And in those veto messages, there were a couple of interesting uh, positions that the governor is taking. One, a position that potentially a, a concurrent special session uh, is, uh, is constitutionally suspect if it's happening at you know concurrent with a regular session, um, and I, I think that the, the legal basis for that would be you know, difficult to prevail uh, for the governor to prevail if he if he tried to press that. But another issue that he's talking about is the scope of the special session itself, um, and so we've already seen that at this point when we're recording today. Uh, does does uh, we do we see the governor throughout this evening? If there are other vetoes, does he say that these vetoes are grounded in the fact that? Uh, the legislation is outside of the call of the special session. Yeah, I remember when Memorial Day would happen and we would think, hey, that's it. Now we can just think about interim sessions <laughs> and elections and that's all. And we can go on to the next session. Yeah, it's not over yet. Yeah. All right, and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at Donate. Dot KOSU.org. Oh, 3403. Wow. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.